A New England Village by Hubert G. Ripley from the White Pine series of architectural monographs, a bi-monthly publication suggesting the architectural uses of white pine and its availability today as a structural wood. Volume 6, Number 2, April 1920. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Ripley was born in Massachusetts, and from the nature of his profession, being attracted by the study of New England antiquities, is pursuing some original research work into the early history of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Mr. Ripley is a member of the firm of Ripley and Le Bautier, architects of Boston. Editor's Note Far from the maddening crowd's ignoble strife, their sober wishes never learned to stray along the cool sequestered vale of life they kept the noiseless tenor of their way when zabdiel podbury fled from stoke on tritham in the spring of sixteen eighty nine with drusilla ives taking passage on the bark promise sailing for massachusetts bay it was not realized at the time that from this union and the joint labors of the pencilian pair the village of Stotham so named by them in memory of their autocrathonious abode, would in later days come to be regarded as a typical example, although perhaps not so well known, of the unspoiled New England village. The terms typical and unspoiled are used advisedly as a reference to the illustrations will show. There are possibly no especially striking or far-famed structures, no wealth of fine carving or ornamental detail, no grand estates or mansion homes, yet from its early simplicity and quality of chaste primness, the village has slowly developed, until, as it now stands, a characteristic chapter of New England endeavor lies spread out on the gently undulating plain, lapped by the salt waters of the inland cove on one side, and stretching out by the fertile meadows of the river on the other. The first temporary houses soon gave way to more permanent structures, and the tradition of restrained, conservative building has been faithfully followed even to the present day. Fortunately, there was no occasion, and from what is more unusual, no inclination to depart from the customs and practices of the earlier settlers in buildings of a later period, and the blighting hand of the real estate promoter and the withering touch of the speculative builder are conspicuously lacking. To the Podbury family, who may well be termed the founders of Stotham, eleven children were born, seven boys and four girls. Adoniram, who married Hefziba Jenks, died in his early thirties, and the descendants of his widow, who afterwards married Theron Greenleaf, still keep up the old Jinx Greenleaf house, the doorway of which is shown in the frontispiece. Ira Podbury married Serena Bellows, and their son Manassas, afterwards a colonel in the Stotham Fusiliers, who made an enviable record in the Revolutionary War, Q.V., Bilk's History of the Early Revolutionary Volunteer Guards Associations, and Cranach's Curious Antiquities of New England Villages, pages 329 through 427, at Sequentia. The financier of the family built the second Podbury Ives house, which was the pride of the village. Obadiah and Nahum Podbury died in their early youth. 
Elnathan was lost at sea, but the youngest son, Obaja, early developed a natural instinct and taste for building, constructed, with the assistance of three others of the first settlers, many of the simple old farmhouses, a few examples of which are illustrated in the following pages. Of the four daughters, Ketura, Matabel, Evelina, and Zoe, nothing is known except of the youngest. Zoe married Herman Billings, and the Billings house, designed by Speet, a Scotch architect with its sloping gardens, gently terracing down to the river, has been kept in almost perfect condition, altered but slightly and with reverent care, as evidences of the relentless tooth of time began to show here and there, until even now its pristine charm is but rounded and enhanced, mellowed and softened, forming a part of a well-nigh perfect example of simple domesticity and dignified unity of fitness of structure to the enframing landscape. Generations of blushing maidens have swung on the old building's gate, opening on the path leading to the meadows in the pale light of the harvest moon, lending shy ear to the rustic swains of their village, as in whispered and halting phrases they spoke of their hopes and aspirations. And as a result of these meetings, old traditions were kept alive, and more and more houses were built, and hearthstones kept bright, sanded floors neatly traced in swerving lines, and the simple life of the early settlers passed on through the mellowing influences of time. Cadwallader Simpkins came to Stotham in 1734, in company with Barzillai Plainfield, and opened a general store. Ebenezer Rogers' tannery down on the Saltmarsh Meadows was just starting at the time, and the firm of Simpkins and Plainfield, which had prospered since its inception, undertook to finance the tannery business and started a shoe and harness shop in a small way as a sideline. From the very beginning the venture prospered, and the tannery grew, and the shop expanded into the old stone factory, with its easily obtainable water power from a natural dam, slightly enlarged and extended by building a mill-race, running close by old Obed Stowe's place. Ebenezer was astute enough to retain control of the business, while duly sensible of the help he was receiving from the proprietors of the general store, and in the course of time amassed a considerable sum of money for those days. He was a generous contributor to the Congregational Church, not the one shown in our illustration, but an earlier type on whose sturdy foundations of rubble the new church now stands. Barzillai Plainfield retired from business while still in the hale and hearty forties, and built an almost palatial mansion for its simple surroundings, yet the details are well contained and the ornament sparingly applied. There is a curious story, too long to be related here, for complete details consult Cranach's Antiquities, Volume 19, from which sterling work many of the facts here related were drawn, concerning the Rogers Mansion, better known under its local title as the Haunted House or the House of Buried Treasure, Briefly, its outline is as follows. Ichabod Soames, a wild, untamed, red-headed youth of the village, ran away at the age of sixteen, and shipped before the mast on the privateer Polly, at the beginning of the French and Indian Wars. Ichabod appears to have been a strapping youth, tall and well-formed for his age, and of Calipigian aspect. In later years it used to be said by the few who were fortunate or unfortunate enough to have encountered him, that a single remaining eye, 
the other having been lost in one of his numerous encounters with barbary pirates possessed a peculiar basilisk quality before which even the stoutest heart quailed and the most resolute spirit became as weak as babbling waters after many and various adventures enduring through a period of some ten or a dozen years during which time ichabod had by sheer force of dominance obtained command of a vessel of his own all trace of him became lost meanwhile the rogers mansion suffered many vicissitudes an old darky servant named phineas mosley was discovered one frosty december morning on the floor of the woodshed with his throat cut from ear to ear it happened that the family were away at the time and the crime would not have been discovered so shortly after its committal had not jersom judkins obijah podbury's foreman and right-hand man happened to be passing by and as it was a cold morning knowing that the rogers family were away decided to step in for the wicker demijohn of santa cruz rum that old phineas had drawn off from the rogers rum barrel a little at a time so that the gradual lowering of its contents would not be noted by the family appalled by the sight that met his eyes as he entered the woodshed he dashed out with a cry on his lips only to be intercepted by a tall bearded stranger with a single piercing eye who neatly and deftly knocked him down with a staggering blow from the butt of his derringer these details were only learned little by little at a later period for when discovered foreman judkins was picked up for dead and never completely recovered from the effects of the terrible blow the rogers house was found to be intact except for the loss of some valuable papers in particular the deeds and description of the rogers title to certain meadowlands some overseas securities in the dutch east india company and a considerable amount in pieces of eight that were known to have been locked up behind a secret panel in the dining-room wainscoting solmes who by now had acquired a very unsavoury reputation through reports that had been trickled into stotham from time to time whether rightly or wrongly was always popularly considered to have committed the crime a tunnel leading from the wine cellar where the rum barrel stood to the outbuildings furnished a ready means of access and escape to one familiar with the secret of the house and grounds as solmes undoubtedly was mainly from the fact that a large heavy derringer marked with a skull and bones intertwined with the initials i s now under a glass and mahogany case in the rooms of the stotham historical society in the basement of the town hall was picked up in the back yard near the woodshed strangely enough rogers and his wife never returned to stotham all traces of them was lost and the house was closed for years after a time it came to be called the haunted house and was shunned and avoided by all later generations forgot the qualms and fears of their forebears and in spite of its atrabularious appearance became quite proud and boastful of its notoriety many strangers wandered out through the daggle of the front yard on sunny may afternoons poking around here and there first under the marble tiles of the piazza which came over in basalt in the in the peruvian bark calasaya from demerara and afterwards through the main rooms in closets seeking whatever might be found of interest in the hope of discovering some trace of the rogers property or some clue left by the assailants of phineas mosley thus the old rogers house gradually disappeared melting away slowly baluster by baluster and door by door till the historical society finally claimed the poor scarred remains for its own 
and for the last thirteen years has kept the vestiges of the departed grandeur and the boast of Stottom from the despoiling touch of the vandal. A very beautiful and quaintly carved pine mantle from the Rogers' front parlor has been set up in the room of the society, together with a console from the dining room, door frame, carved out of a solid white pine plank, three and three-quarters inches thick and thirty inches long, portraying the birth of Ariadne. It was rescued in almost perfect condition, and still retains all its pristine freshness without crack or flaw. The cornice of the porch, some of the columns, and a few of the balusters may also be seen. In detail, the balusters over the front porch show touches of southern influence, and it is said that they were copied from a pattern brought home by Ebenezer Rogers, who traveled often to Baltimore, where he had many business and social connections, while still active in the affairs of the tannery. Main Street winds gently uphill from the village square, lined with stately elms and locusts. On each side are the principal residences of Stottom's prominent citizens. The Beria Matthews House, now owned by two very charming maiden ladies, who still serve steaming, fragrant bohe and fragile Chelsea, with crisp buttered cassava biscuits fresh from a hot trivet in the east parlor, at four-thirty precisely each afternoon, is quite as interesting in its interior as the promise of its exterior indicates. To one who has enjoyed the privilege of assisting on such occasions, it is a pleasure rarely to be experienced elsewhere, to hear and listen to their delightful conversation, to follow the reminiscences so quaintly worded, and to experience the gentle glow of their charming hospitality. It is the personal contact with the people themselves that lends an elusive charm to the externals of their environment. As the houses seem to show by their aspect, they are the personification, in their external and internal attributes, of the simplicity of life, and the friendly point of view of the gentlefolk who live in them. This is true of the Silas Mann house, now occupied by his great-grandchildren. Silas Mann amassed a fortune in East India trade, and the East dining room is still the most perfect example of Chinese Chippendale extant in New England. It is also true to a lesser extent of Gideon's Ponds house and the slightly older Joab Hubbard house. Salmon White's house, sometimes called the Crocus house, on account of the peculiar shade of saffron originally used on the sidings, had a somewhat quaint origin. The main facts, of which the following is only the briefest abstract, were obtained from a pamphlet on the shelves of the Historical Society entitled A Short Account of the Experiences of Salmon White on the Sailing Vessel Roxanne, from Stottom Narrows to Lucca, Anno Domine, 1799, published by Asher Harrison, 12 and a half Main Street, Stottom, June 1823. At the age of 37, Salmon White, at that time just recovering from an attack of enteric anemia, shipped as supercargo on the brigantine Roxanne and Balsan for Lucca. After a passage of 119 days, during which headwinds and cross-currents were encountered, and many hairbreadth escapes from the dangers of the deep, all faithfully set forth in the log of Captain Eldad Bottomley, the island of Tenerife was raised, four points south-south-west by west off the larboard bow on the morning of October 23rd dropping anchor in the harbor of Risotto at the base of the famous peak of Tenerife, at that time possessing an unenviable notoriety as the haunt of buccaneers 
of the Spanish main, it was learned that a young Scotchman by the name of Robert Adam was extremely anxious to leave the island at the earliest possible moment, as well he might be, having been marooned there when all save he went down in the wreck of the bouncing Betty. Young Adam and the supercargo soon struck up a warm friendship, due partly to a natural sympathy in ideals, and cemented permanently by the happy faculty which White possessed in the mixing of Santa Cruz sours, a beverage that young Adam declared topped his favorite negus by several pegs. After a few slugs of this delectable stingo had been brought to a perfect blend with a swizzle stick, wielded by the deft fingers of a master of the craft, Adam, learning that White, on his return to Stotham, intended to erect a newer and more appropriate house for a man of his circumstances and constantly growing family, whiled away the long hours of the dog-watch by making rough sketches for his new friend, showing in more or less detail the inspiration that pervades the southeast façade of Solomon White's house, the peculiar arrangement of the staircase, and more especially the mouldings around the inside of the main door framing. Some of these sketches may now be seen on the walls of the historical society, and a close scrutiny reveals the initials R.A., faintly traced in sanded ink, on the lower right-hand side of some scraps of paper, evidently torn from the ship's log on which they were made. In particular, the spider-web window which adorns the main façade shows the influence of Adam, though its execution lacks finesse, and may be said to have an original quaintness on that account, not always observed in the works of the famous brothers who afterwards became the vogue, and developed to a high degree of delicacy the more sturdy forms of their predecessors. Space will not permit mention of all that is of interest in Stotham, fascinating as even the most casual study of its history may be, but some of the more prominent structures must not be allowed to pass without a note here and there, to call attention to certain of their characteristics. Obadiah Witherspoon's house at the head of the village green, now owned by Miss Sophronia Winterbottom, a grandniece of Obadiah's, where she takes in a few paying guests for the summer months, is the proud possessor of a portico worthy of the most careful study. The details of the Ionic capitals and the modulation of the entablature have all been most faithfully and studiously wrought with reverent care, the capitals being hewn by hand out of solid blocks of the finest white pine, and protected by frequent applications of pure white lead and Calcutta oil. They are as perfect and fresh as the day they left Lemuel Short's shop down by the old dam. The house of old Joab Drinkwater, who married Corina Kane in his sixty-ninth year, Corina being then a mere slip of a girl, dazzled by the worldly possessions of the redoubtable major of the one-time Stodham Fusiliers, shows a façade of great restraint and dignity, and at the same time a purity of outline and sense of proportion rarely excelled by buildings of that date. Uriel Underwood's house, a view of which is shown from the meadows leading to the river, has a nice balance and relation of outbuildings to main structures that is worthy of careful analysis. Consciously or unconsciously, the earlier generations of New England settlers seem to strike just the right note of proportion, harmony, fitness, and what is more impressive, the distinctive character of their lives and the design of their buildings. Even a glance at the exterior of their houses and the most casual study of the planning material from which they were built leads to the inevitable conclusion that here at least exists an indigenous architecture wholly suited to its purposes 
almost more than in any other village this quality is to be noted in Stopham, where the quintessence of naturalness finds its ultimate expression end of an architectural monograph on a new england village by hubert g ripley 1837-1840